worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Daily Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and if you don't trust ale from a God-fearing people, then you've never heard of Trappist monks. I'm joined on this episode by Derek Tyler Attico. Derek is an author, essayist, and photographer. He's a two-time winner of the Pocketbook's Strange New Worlds writing competition, and he's also a contributor to Bob Greenberger's recent Thrilling Adventure Yarns anthology. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. It's good to have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today, we'll be talking about Emissary, the premiere episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The United Federation of Planets, as seen in TOS and TNG, can be described in many different ways, depending on your disposition. An egalitarian post-scarcity utopia, a critique of 20th century society and politics, space America cured of its late-stage capitalism and nationalism, but ultimately, its home base for the storytelling of the Star Trek universe. Much has been made and perhaps exaggerated of Gene Roddenberry's no-conflict rule in Star Trek storytelling, but let's face it, except for the odd insane captain or axe-grinding badmiral, future humanity is united in its determination to encounter new civilizations, hang around just long enough to pity a society who isn't as enlightened as the Federation, and then warp away to next week's allegory. But that cycle was broken with the debut of Deep Space Nine a series that would keep the stars and lose the trek, one that was set amidst a society shattered by war, buoyed by faith, and haunted by an enemy that couldn't be chased away, talked to death, or uh, whatever they did to Melvin Belly at the end of And the Children's Lead. <laughs> it was a series commissioned to poke holes in the utopia of Trek and examine the lives of people living in its periphery, and it introduced the character of Benjamin Sisko, a man more broken and more essentially human than any previous Star Trek protagonist. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Derek, I always ask new guests to the show about their backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Oh, my God. That's a great question. Um, So let's see. I became a Star Trek fan uh, basically um, as a kid, watching it with my my parents, um, the old uh, TOS uh, Star Trek, watching that. And uh, uh, TOS was what was, I guess, my gateway into Star Trek. Um, (laughs) You know Kirk and and the the, the old crew, and um, from there I jumped into um, Next Gen. But I really didn't like a lot of uh, Next Gen. I, I guess I got into like the first season, and then I kind of dropped off. Interesting. And, you know, yeah, and um, and I, I I watched like some of the, the Borg stuff, of course, and then I I dropped off on it. And then when Deep Space Nine came, it was a totally different type of Star Trek. So I got into that. Yeah. I, and 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 really started watching Star Trek. And then when I um decided to start uh, um, writing for Star Trek and uh, not really writing for Star Trek, but for when I wrote the um, Strange New Worlds uh, story, I decided to go back and, and rewatch all of uh, Next Gen. And I was like, oh my God, I'm missing all the stuff that I missed. I didn't know Next Gen was that great. It was, you know, 
that it was such a phenomenal show, you know? That's interesting. It's so important, or from what I understand, it was so important for the people at TNG, at least early on, to replicate uh, what came before in TOS. So it's surprising to me that you would love TOS so much and then see the first uh, season or two of TNG and be like, not for me. Yeah, exactly. And but I, I think what what happened is it took it took a season or two or three for uh, for TNG to kind of get rolling. You oh, know, certainly, yeah. And and then once it got rolling, um, it became it, it it started to uh, appeal to everything that well everything that Gene Roddenberry wanted. You know, everything that the tenets that he uh, that he mandated for Star Trek. It just started to fulfill those really easily. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it was it was really it was really really good for that, um, and then once I noticed that, then I just was hooked. We met at Shortleaf this year, uh, and one panel that you were on at the show was for the Star Trek Adventures role playing game. Can you talk about your contributions to the Star Trek RPG? Uh, a little bit. Um, well, you, don't, <laughs> you don't have to reveal any secrets. Uh, well, um, I was very uh, grateful that uh, Jim Johnson, who's the line editor for Star Trek Adventures, he asked me to. Uh, um, basically pitch for that and I did and uh, and uh, he gave me some work to do and um, one of the first things that he gave me was um, s- some work with uh, Star Trek um, the uh, Alpha Quadrant book that just came out actually sure. and uh, just to see what I could do and basically what I did was I, uh, I added some storylines for the Star Trek uh, Next Generation. Okay. Um, the Generations film. I'm sorry, the Generations film. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did with that is I added a storyline from Generations into the Alpha Quadrant book. Okay. And, and um, I always wanted to know, like, what were the Romulans doing in Generations? <laughs> okay. Sure. And so what I did was I added that idea into the Alpha Quadrant book. And then from there... Uh, he liked what I did, and um, so now I'm doing some other things for uh, Star Trek Adventures that I'm going to be happy to uh, to uh, roll out um, over time, hopefully. Um, that's great. I, you know, in the context of the series of of TNG, um, the Romulans were probably dealing with you know a possible re- reunion with the uh, Vulcans, but then of course when nemesis comes around we find out no that's not happening at all and in fact there's a whole other brother race to the romulans that want to take over exactly canon can shift a lot how how do you deal with that when you're writing for uh star trek rpg something that has a lot of canon that's in flux and then of course new shows like discovery come out and change things is there a certain place that you guys like to uh, a a gray area you like to write in as far as uh, canon issues go well, you know, yeah, that's a great question, and it is kind of challenging in regards to like what to write and what what not to write. Yeah. Uh, right now, what we're doing with Star Trek Adventures is we're dealing uh, pretty much with um, everything dealing up up until Star Trek uh, Generations. We're um, moving a little bit beyond beyond that into um, D Space Nine, the D Space Nine and Voyager era as well. Okay. Um, and that's currently. We may move beyond that. You know, that for that information, you'd have to speak to Jim, Jim Johnson. Oh, sure. But, right. um, but predominantly, when I think about what I want to write, I I basically uh, take everything that I can. I have uh, everything that I want to look into from TOS and Next Gen, D Space Nine, and Voyager. Now that's 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 vast, right? We're talking yeah. about 
I mean, you know, you're talking, oh, I'm sorry, and you can't forget enterprise, right? right. So, so I mean, you're talking about all those different series. You're talking about a lot of material to pull from and a lot of different adventures for the fans. So it's not like we're really um, uh, tying our hands behind our back in any, in, in, in it, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, there's so much material to, to write for. And with the uh, Shackleton expanse that Star Trek Adventures is doing as well, it's actually mm-hmm. opening up different areas of the of the galaxy of the alpha quadrant that hasn't been seen before in any other uh, mode of star trek except star trek adventures so that's something that's exciting you know yeah it's a big galaxy it is it's a very big galaxy out there that's why they call it space, right? <laughs> That's why, yeah, it's all about space. <laughs> Moving away from Trek for a bit, you're one of the contributors to the Thrilling Adventure Yarns, which came out in July. Uh, it's available right now on Amazon. Uh, it's an anthology of different tales in the pulp tra- tradition, celebrating mystery, sci-fi, sword and sorcery, and other genre fiction. Were you a pulp fiction or a comics fan when you were growing up? Oh, my God, Aaron. Um, I was a huge comic book fan. Is yes. Uh, I mean, I, so the, yes, the answer is yes. I'm sorry. The answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I think um, comic books was my gateway into pretty much everything. I mean, Marvel, DC, um, Spider-Man, uh, Fantastic Four, uh, Batman. Um, in in first grade, I refused to be called Derek. I made my teacher call me Batman. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, almost that kind of kid. You know, so and I like I like broke her down like one day, and she like. Every time she uh, she would like call my name, I wouldn't respond until she finally like Batman. I was like, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm I'm that kind of a kid, wow. or oh, was that kind of a kid? So yeah, um, absolutely. Comic books was my gateway, and um, as I got older, I started to do a lot of reading. So then I actually went kind of like backwards and read like a lot of those pulp novels and yeah, and and a lot of the science the um classic science fiction. I, I really got into a lot of that. Asimov, um, Clark, you know, I, I read a lot of the classics and, and steeped myself in a lot of that material. Yeah. Sci-fi anthologies are something that I, I think I devoured as a kid, right. but I wasn't really cognizant. Um, I don't think I even knew that different people were writing those stories. I just picked up a book, you know, that right. was sci-fi anthologies or sci-fi stories. And as I got into specific universes like Marvel Comics or Tolkien or whatever, I think I read less and less anthologies and got sort of funneled into those more well-known brands. But as I'm getting older, I'm trying to go back and collect more um, anthologies and, like you said, more classic authors, um, your mm-hmm. Asimovs, your, your Clarks, and so on. I think the first science fiction anthology I ever read was S is for Space. Mm. And um, I just remember the title. Yeah. And that that was I mean, I was I was I couldn't have been more than I don't know, maybe ten, eleven maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah. And a lot of that stuff is really heady for, for a ten or eleven year old. Right, right. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But it was great stuff. It was great stuff. So yeah. yeah absolutely. I think I was born a little too late to get in on the golden age of sci fi and pulp. You know, those anthologies were around when I was young, but by the time I knew that I what I should be looking for, magazines like Amazing Stories and, and so on and so forth were mostly out of publication. You, you know what? You're absolutely right. But here's the thing that I'm thankful for is that a lot of the comic book writers and artists of the age when we were kids, they were steeped in that. So mm-hmm. they kind of brought that in their storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
Right. You know, and so even though we didn't realize it, we were kind of being ushered into classic storytelling, classic science fiction. Um, just, you know, thinking of uh, uh, John Byrne, uh, Chris Claremont, you know, a lot of their storytelling. When you really look at it, it, it has a it, it it kind of calls back to some of that some of that um, pulp that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, this is dangerous. I mean, I, I could talk comics with you the whole oh, yeah. show but yeah, sorry yeah, right. <laughs> we should go back to track <laughs> right. uh why'd you choose this specific episode emissary to discuss today i remember when deep space nine ended the whatever day that ended well, i don't remember the exact day but i remember mm. watching it and as soon as that as the show i was watching it you know as it was airing as soon as it ended i went back and i watched emissary and i was just struck at how they bookended each other so perfectly. Yeah, and I was looking at uh, other uh, other uh, episodes that other people had selected, and no one had selected Emissary. And I thought Emissary is such a pivotal episode in so many different ways. Um, for Star Trek specifically, it is the it, it just it just started so many things that we have now there's no with without without deep space nine and emissary there's no discovery yeah you know and 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 um long format storytelling deep space nine was one of the television shows forget science fiction one of the television shows of the time that took that bold initiative and was doing that you know so i i really want to talk about and then you also have the whole issue of having a, a man of color and you know leading a television show and and that type of storytelling and then the religious aspect and that t- type of storytelling. I mean, there were so many firsts that Deep Space Nine did. I felt it was uh, actually necessary um, to talk about it. On top of that, when I wrote my um, Strange New Worlds, um, recent Strange New Worlds story, um, The Dreamer and the Dream, this was a pivotal episode for it. So I figured this would be a, a, a great thing for me to talk about. I really struggled, honestly, to figure out how to, to, to cover this episode. I mean, more mm. than any other pilot in Trek, it, I think it feels like the first step in a long journey, even if they didn't know where they were headed at first. You know, even more than Voyager and Caretaker, um, which is literally about a journey, Emissary right. feels less like a premise of an ongoing show and more like the first chapter of like an epic story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and when you talk about um, pilots... One thing I did recently was I watched every pilot in order. Hmm. So, so I watched um, actually uh, Enterprise's pilot first, then Discovery. <laughs> okay. You know, so I watched them in, in a chronological order, I should say. Sure. Um, uh, chronological in Star Trek time. Um, and it's interesting, you know, how they all hold up, even the older ones, you know, like um, where No Man's Gone Before. And it's interesting, the kind of like left turn that emissary takes, yeah. you know, you have a cat, you have a, not even a captain, you have a commander. He's not on a ship. He's on a station. He does not like the beloved John Luke Picard. You know, he, he has, <laughs> yeah. you know, he has some deep seated, rooted emotional issues with this man. And, and uh, it's so interesting because that's something that I know I didn't expect. And I watching that pilot for the first time. And I, I think, uh, I don't think, any of Star Trek fandom expected that because uh, all of Starfleet gets along unless you're an evil admiral, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I mean, 
pretty much that's what we that's what um next gen uh taught us for the most part that everyone is happy and and pretty much gets along and here we have um not even a um in rank at least not an, an equal because he was a commander at the time cisco was commander at the time yeah. and he's not even he's not even letting uh the card finishes sentences. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. It's like, like, what's going on? You know? And, 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 uh, he, he, when he, when he meets him, he tells him, you know, yeah, we, we, we've met before, you know, in battle at three, five, with three, five, nine. And the card, <laughs> the card can't even look the man in the face Yeah, because, you know, because of the guilt he feels and, 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 you know, and it's that moment between them. And of course they're both phenomenal actors. Right. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so the, the, the subtext is, is, is like, oh my God, that room, it, it's this huge um, meeting room, just two people, but it's filled with all this subtext. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and he's like, look, I don't want to be here. The Bajorans aren't ready. So find somebody else. And in the meanwhile, do the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it's. It's, it's great. It's great. And that, that and Deep Space Nine out the box tells you and shows you, hey, you know, we're not going to be what you expect. Yeah. You know, um, and for me, I realized that when I saw uh, um, in that opening scene, you have that opening crawl. You know, Star Trek doesn't have opening crawls. That's something that I Star know. Wars did. I know. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, well, what's going on here? You know? I love that. It's like, you, you get how Star Trek works, but hold on for a second. Give me a minute. I got to explain something and then we'll get right to it. Right. Right. And then they go into a battle that everybody wanted to see, but we never did. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Wolf 359. Then we see it and it's like, oh my God, this is great. Yeah. There's, you, know? you, you can never really plan um, how these, sh- and that's what the one thing that I kind of regret about um, having two shows overlapping like they did at that time. I mean, it's a neat thing, but it's hard to integrate what's happening. But apparently the meeting like Emissary, the meeting between Picard and Cisco takes place soon after Chain of Command. So at this point, we know if we're TNG fans that Picard, thanks to his experiences in Chain of Command and also with Ensign Rowe, that he has like an investment in this. It isn't just that, sure, we're seeing the guy who stars in the other show, but we're also seeing a guy who is really invested in this transition of power and like this is important to him. And then to have Cisco throw it back in his face is, yeah, that's a... that's a statement. Yes, it is. It's a powerful statement, you know. And and I, I remember when uh, when at that when you see uh, Cisco and he, he loses his wife and all that happens in the intro. And for me, the one of the most memorable like moments that see it into my memory is when he gets into the escape shuttle with his son, and he looks out and he sees the Saratoga explode, and it's that beautiful, horrific reflection shot. Yeah. And and it's the Saratoga exploding. And it's not just the Saratoga exploding. It's his hopes exploding, his dreams exploding. Yeah. You know, and it's everything in that is encapsulated in that moment. And I'm like, oh, this this is not what is this? You know, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've never seen, you know, I've never seen a captain or, 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 or anything like this on Star Trek. Well, what is going on? So, yeah, it, it was definitely something new. It's so. a different kind of show. Right. Well, that show is the DS9 feature length premiere Emissary. It first aired on January 3rd of 1993. The teleplay is by Michael Piller and the story is by Michael Piller and Rick Berman. 
And Pillar, of course, we've talked about before on the show, but he's a storied name in the halls of Trek, having written The Best of Both Worlds, as well as Emissary and Caretaker, the pilot of Voyager, and he co-created DS9 and Voyager. He also wrote and co-produced Star Trek Insurrection. Uh, he was an avid baseball fan and a baseball card collector, which inspired Cisco's love of the game. Yes. Uh, Rick Berman was, of course, the executive producer of every Trek series from TNG to Enterprise. He co-created DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. He also contributed to many scripts for the four post-TOS pre-discovery shows and co-wrote and co-produced the four TNG films. This episode was directed by David Carson. David Carson directed four episodes of both TNG and DS9, as well as directing Star Trek Generations. And along with Jonathan Frakes, he's the only series director to also direct a Star Trek feature film. The star date for this episode kind of jumps around a little bit as we go through Cisco's life, but it begins on 44002.3 and picks up on the station at 46379.1. And your assignment, Derek, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Emissary. A 25-word synopsis. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, after 50 years of occupation by the Cardassians, the Bajoran government asked the Federation for assistance. Uh, they send Benjamin Sisko, a Starfleet officer who is struggling with the loss of his wife and is raising his son alone. Uh, as he commands Deep Space Nine, a former Cardassian space station, he discovers a stable wormhole for Bajor and the path out of his own pain. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you... Uh... Whenever you ask authors to do that, it always becomes more of like an elevator pitch than 25 right, words. Right, but no, right. that's very succinct and detailed. Yeah, I try to you know, keep it succinct, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's usually at this point in the show that I dig up some facts from the memory banks about the episode in question. But wow, there was so much to say about Emissary and really DS9 in general. It's hard to know where to start. So I will mention a few specific factoids, but mostly I think we can take this chance to talk about the development of the series and also as it being a departure from typical Trek storytelling and what sets it apart from the Trek that had come before. Okay. Uh, as for the genesis of the show, Rick Berman was approached by Paramount studio head Brandon Tartikoff in 1991 about developing a spinoff from TNG. And Tartikoff had worked with Berman previously when Tartikoff was the head of NBC. And he had been brought in to Paramount to oversee the completion of production on Star Trek VI which was the end of the franchise, you know, of the TOS franchise, uh, and was doing okay but not great. And he was told right. by the higher-ups at Paramount that this would be the last Star Trek film. Um, but he was later promoted to chairman of Paramount Pictures, and he thought, why does that have to be so? I think Trek huh. has some life left in it, uh, especially with the success of TNG. So during a se series of meetings with Rick Berman about the future of the fr franchise, he proposed the now familiar seven-season limit for Star Trek series, uh, wow. which would persist until the end of Voyager. Yeah, And his reasoning was that with rising costs of television production, uh, cast salaries, seven seasons was about as far as a Trek series would stretch. Of course, now with Supernatural going into its 15th season or whatever it is, we know that uh, a lot of genre show franchises can <laughs> right. go very far. But yeah, very far. But the plan was to have uh, future Trek shows go seven seasons and the studio should start grooming the next generation crew to take up the mantle of replacing the TOS crew on screen, on the big screen. He also wanted the series to have a Western feel in the tradition of Star Trek's Wagon to the Stars. And the 50s, uh, the series that they looked to for inspiration was the 50s series, The Rifleman. Mm. Which I've, uh, I, I love Bonanza. I love a lot of those old Western shows and Gunsmoke. I've seen right. a little bit of The Rifleman on, on Me TV or whatever. Um, and I know that it does involve, it involves a widower and a son who go to a frontier town and have to kind of clean it up. 
great. I, I, I'm, I'm, the name of the actor escapes me, but I've seen a few of them on MeTV as well, and I never would have made that connection. But now that you say it, wow, that, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's great. yeah. Uh, Tartikoff passed away of Hodgkin's lymphoma in 97, but he's credited with not only paving the way for the future of Star Trek outside of TOS and TNG, but he also oversaw the rise of NBC in the 80s with oh, shows wow. like L.A. Law and Miami Vice and Cheers, um, Seinfeld, the whole must TV era. I actually learned in my research that Tartikoff helped develop the NBC series Punky Brewster, and <laughs> Punky's dog Brandon is actually named after him. <laughs> wow. I always thought that was a weird name for a dog, but now I know the story. Now you know it. why. Right. Now, and now I know. Wow, that's crazy. And he was uh, memorialized with a title card at the start of A Time to Stand, the six season premiere of DS9. Well, Berman and Pillar spent months working on the series Bible for the show, uh, fleshing out the setting and the characters, and Pillar wanted the pilot to begin at the Battle of Wolf 359, as he wrote the best of both worlds uh, scripts. Uh, And early in the process, he brought Iris Stephen Bear on board, and reportedly he gave Bear a copy of the series Bible at a baseball game that they were attending. Now, this (laughs) is probably uh, a baseball game, you know, in California. Right. Uh, So, but I I wonder where, uh, I wonder who he's a fan of like what his team is oh that's great that's i think great he's from like upstate new york uh originally and i know that he went to uh north carolina so he's always got the north carolina hat on but i was trying to figure out like who, who he's a fan of are you right. a, to quote uh benicio del toro in the movie traffic you like baseball <laughs> i do like baseball i do like baseball i i, I actually live in the bronx oh okay and, all right and, i think i know who but, you like but you'd be wrong because <gasps> um uh, well, when I was a kid, of course, I was a I was a big Yankees fan. But uh, I've become more of a Mets fan just okay. because the Mets seem to be like the underdog, and, <laughs> okay, and okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I root for the underdog. You know, not not the guy that that is, you know, the the heir apparent. You know, I, yeah. I want the under I want the underdog. So I'm more of a Mets fan these days. I can totally understand that. Uh, I'm from the Twin Cities, and so for ah. most of my life, I've been able to root for the underdog. But now that the uh, Twins are on top this year, right, I guess I'll have right. to root for the Brewers or something like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this is the first Trek premiere, and of course, Trek series without input from Gene Roddenberry. Uh, Gene right. was by this time in poor health and wasn't involved in the day to day production of the franchise. And, you know, I think that that is both um, that's both sad and it's both, I think, really key to what DS9 eventually became. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. uh, You mentioned uh, earlier in the show that DS9 really put into practice and made real um, the the values that uh, Gene wanted to see in his entertainment. But. I think certainly um, when he came back, you know, for TNG and wanted to get his franchise back off the ground, there was a sense of, I've got to keep control of this thing. You know, I've got this second shot at it and it has to be a certain way. And it's really only until he did sort of step back and let go of things and allow other people like Michael Piller uh, at all to develop the show that it really um, blossomed into the Trek that we think of today. Absolutely. I, I think what's beautiful about Star Trek just in general uh, from the production side of it, you know, from behind the scenes, is that every iteration of it, regardless of what the fans will say, right, every iteration of it has always thought deeply about what Gene wanted so that if it didn't give, like, exactly, you know, verbatim what he wanted, the spirit of Gene is in every iteration of Star Trek, yeah. unquestionably, you know? And, and that's a beautiful thing because as a writer, you, you're... 
you have trepidation about, you know, um, giving away or, or, or having someone else work on your material. But next gen, it was beautiful. It was beautiful how next gen um, um, passed that torch from TOS. And Deep Space Nine does that as well, but it does it in a way that no one expects because it takes a, a totally different perspective. And now we're looking at everything from the outside. We're no longer in the happy, you know, friendly federation. Yeah, yeah. We're on the outside where things aren't, you know, going as happy and are going as great as everyone would like, you know. And, and some of these aliens on outside the federation, they're not happy with everything. And they look at everything. They look at our utopia or the federation's utopia and they really don't appreciate a lot of what's going on. So I think that's an interesting and it's a very honest take on not only Star Trek, but the world itself. And I think some of the fans weren't really prepared for that. Yeah. But now they look at it and they say, you know what? It's, it's my Star Trek too. It's fascinating. And I wonder what it says that in a, in a franchise about diversity and about uh, exploring up till this point, you just, you needed to have seven people against the entire galaxy. Do you know what I mean? Like they could fly anywhere. They could see amazing things and meet people with, you know, crazy things on their heads or whatever. But like, it was always about that core unit. And I think that it's just a natural evolution of that universe to see what some other people are doing, you know, to go to the fringes and the periphery and, and hang out there and see, what people are like when they're not wearing multicolored pajamas and just flying <laughs> right. around on a ship. Right, right. It's a big galaxy. And oh, yeah, we can't yeah. we cannot just keep looking at it from one perspective. I, I always think of um Star Trek the Motion Picture. There's a line from Spock of Star Trek the Motion Picture. Mm. And he's talking and Spock is talking about Vija and uh, he's saying uh, you know Vija needs to evolve. It has to go forward. It has done all it can do. And I always think that, you know, you could take that same line and apply it to Star Trek. Star Trek must continue to evolve. And if it doesn't, then it will stagnate. But what the producers and writers understand about Star Trek is that it must always continue to evolve. And to do that, it has to be honest and it has to open up and it has to show us different things and it has to take challenges and not be safe. I think that that's, yeah, that's definitely how they approached it. Um, When they arrive at the station, of course, at the beginning of the show, it's all trashed and dilapidated. And that was, that look of the station was inspired in part by the real life destruction following the uh, LA riots in 92. Um, And if that, of course, fits with the theme of, you know, people trying to put their lives together amidst this racial and social tension. Wow, that's great. I didn't, I did not know that, but that makes perfect sense to, you know, the best writing is the writing that's honest and pulls from reality. Yeah. You know? So that's that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, as this is the pilot of the show, some aspects of the actor's makeup are still being worked out. Uh, yes. Odo has a very different look than he'd have later in the series. Although as a changeling, I guess Odo could look however he wants to. <laughs> right. uh, Quark may look a little different. Apparently the prosthetic nose made for Armin Shimmerman wasn't ready in time for shooting. So he's actually wearing the nose made for Rom actor Max Gredenchik. Wow. Okay. I can't tell. Neither can I. Yeah, but yeah, little little mix up there. Uh, Emissary was nominated for four Emmy Awards, and it won an Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Special Visual Effects. Mm. And this episode marks the only appearance of the Borg on Deep Space Nine. Oh, wow. Right, right. That's right. That's right. That makes sense. Okay. Which, wow. again, I just applaud the courage and the direction of right. the writers to take something that was clearly huge and just like well-loved by the fans and go, it's not... 
what we're doing. It's not for us. We right, are going to we'll have see. Q on <laughs> on an episode, a couple <laughs> right. in here, but but then no more Borg. Yeah. Right, right. We're just going to. It's it's just actually what is so huge in next gen is just a, a basically a, a plot point for us. Yeah. You know, and that's like wow, really? You know, and and, and then on top of all that, what what just blew my mind is we're going to use baseball to explain linear time. What? You know? <laughs> that is so, I know that is so great. And just as a baseball fan personally, I mean, it just looking right? at like, that makes perfect sense. I mean, there's, yes. there's a lot of uh, sports you could probably use to do this, but the fact that it's so cyclical and, you, you know, going around the diamond, it's sort of like right. a clock and just the, the way that it goes. Yeah. It's amazing. It is. It is. Yeah. Thanks, Michael Piller. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes. I was blown away when I saw that, and it was because it made perfect sense. I was like, "Oh my god!" And it, it it actually taught me what writing can be when it's firing on all cylinders. On all cylinders, you know, writing is a beautiful thing. And when you're when you're when you're at your at your apex, what you can do with it, you know. And and that was at a point. It was that was what ninety ninety three, right? Right. So I, I wasn't even really thinking so much about writing, but it was like, wow, these writers, they're, they're, really, they're really doing a great job. So yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, that's a great scene. Although I don't know what's wrong with the one guy who keeps yelling aggressive, adversarial. He's got a problem. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, we've got <laughs> we've got an entire cast to talk about, but let's focus on some of the nude side characters that we're introduced to in this episode. Uh, one person that we won't be talking about much is Michelle Forbes, uh, who played Ensign Rowe on TNG. She was initially yes. approached to reprise the role of Rowe in a central role in this series, but uh, it was a role that would ultimately be rewritten into Kira Norris when Michelle Forbes turned it down to focus on her film career. And, you know, thank God. Because yes. Michelle Forbes would have been great, but then we wouldn't have had Nana Visitor. Yes, yes. And Nana Visitor is phenomenal in the role. Yeah. She is Kira Norris, uh, no question. And you're right, thank God. You know, just thank God. Well, we do have Camille Saviola as Kai Opaka in this episode. She was born in the Bronx, and she graduated from the High School of Music and Art in Manhattan. She was the lead singer of the Margot Lewis Explosion Band in the 1970s, a disco band before taking up acting. And she got her start in film in a pair of Woody Allen movies, Broadway Danny Rose and The Purple Rose of Cairo. In addition to her role as Kai Opaka, which she would play four times on DS9, she also appeared several times as Turtle's mom in Entourage. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. And Felicia M. Bell plays Jennifer Sisko in the episode. She would appear twice more as Jennifer Sisko on the series, though it was her Mirror Universe counterpart. Bell had recurring roles on Days of Our Lives and General Hospital in the 1990s. She was also a regular on the syndicated superhero series Nightman. Oh, wow. And Nightman was a was a Malibu hero or what? Nightman was one of those companies that wasn't DC or, right. or Marvel. The name is familiar, but I I never read the comics for sure. He was a guy. It was so nineties. Like he was a guy with like this kind of shaggy hair. He had this uh, <laughs> cape, and then he had like a mask where one eye was bigger than the other. And he was like a vigilante by night, and like a jazz <laughs> a sax jazz saxophone player by day. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, one of those early like, like that uh, mantis. Uh, the, Mantis, I remember. Yeah, the early um, yeah. Flash TV show, like those kind of yes. early attempts to do uh, these kind of heroes on, on TV and not, not right. quite getting it right, but 
uh, a lot of character all the same. Wow. And uh, Joel Sweetow appears as Gul Jassad. Sweetow has yes. also appeared as alien characters on TNG and Enterprise, as well as lending his voice to various Star Trek video games. Oh, wow. And finally, John Noah Hertzler plays the Vulcan captain of the Saratoga. John Noah would later take the credit J.G. Hertzler and the role of Martok in seasons four through seven of DS9. Yes, 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 yes. And he played a great Vulcan. Uh, yeah, yeah right. right. It's one of those things I love about uh, the Paramount production is that, uh, you know, when they work with somebody they like, they bring that person back. And yes. if they're aliens, you just stick something on their face and it's plausible that they're a different person. Right. Going all the way back to Mark Lennon, you know, yeah. um, from a Vulcan to a to a Romulan <laughs> to a Cleon. So, yeah. yeah, we mentioned... Uh, on an earlier show this season that uh, it's it's just so funny that like Mark Lennard is the first Romulan that uh, the Federation lays eyes on in like 150 years. Right. And he looks just like Spock's dad and nobody thinks that's weird. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole story there. You think at least sure. Spock would uh, have something to say about that, but I guess not. I guess not. Well, uh, talking uh, gen more generally about the episode, uh, like we talked before, DS9 just feels like the perfect evolution of the Star Trek premise, and we've got two shows where the USS Enterprise is zipping around the galaxy and bringing us these self-contained stories, but in DS9 we get a show that stays put and begins to give us, I think, really the most concrete world-building in the franchise. It fills in the margins of the galaxy, and it must have feel like, felt like a huge gamble, uh, especially with Absolutely. the success of TNG, which of course is doing crazy business in syndication was like the biggest syndicated show ever. And yet their idea was let's do that, but a lot different and do pretty much none of the things that, I mean, there's no ship <laughs> to take people right. places. Like it's totally different. Yeah. It's, it's, it goes nowhere. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, literally, everyone comes to Deep Space Nine, and, and I and I think that's a, a great idea because it gives it gave the show time to breathe, and everyone yeah. was yeah. a little antsy and a little like, "What's going on?" We're used to going going places, but it was really a courageous move of the writers and producers, and they say, "You know what? No, just wait. People are going to come to us. We have the wormhole, so we're gonna we're gonna tell those stories. We're gonna get there." Yeah. But first, we want to establish what's happening here. And when you have a, a planet that had a 50-year occupation by, you know, Bezor and, and, and by the Cardassians, that's a lot of storytelling that needs to be told to set up this world and set up what's going on here. So, you know, it was a smart, smart move. Yeah, starting it in the in the middle like that was really, really amazing. And it's sort of the difference between, we were talking before about anthology fiction, between anthology fiction and something that's more serial, in that right. we, we have the same characters in TNG, but you can pretty much pitch whatever you want, the green planet, the red planet, the blue planet every week. But right. every week we've got to come back, and now what's Quark doing? You know, he's hacking the uh, replicators <laughs> to uh, put commercials on them. Uh, or what's the uh, continuing development of, you know, the relationship between our characters or the characters in this world that they are, you know, hunkered down in? Um, yeah, it's just... I don't, I don't know how you couldn't continue to do this. And I really hope that they do this again, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, yes. I, I think um, with hindsight, we know that it was a great achievement and it's one of everybody's favorite series. But it seems like they almost immediately tried to go back to formula with Voyager and then do it again in a different way with Enterprise. And then we've got Discovery, which is itself serial um, and much more um, focusing on the day to day ongoing story building. But yeah. I hope they do something like this again. I agree. I agree. I think it's, it's, it's at some point it will 
even be necessary because you need to stop. You know, you need to stop. You need to go and explore. That's what Star Trek is. Yes, that is what Star Trek is. But at some point, you need to be static in one place and see what's happening in a different part of the galaxy. You know, just and then let things come to that place, you know, wherever that is, whether it's the Gamma Quadrant or, you know, the Delta Quadrant, wherever that is, you, we need to know, we need to see what's happening from other people's perspectives, because that is also Star Trek. Yeah. Know? And I think it's interesting that uh, right away, Discovery tried to uh, cherry pick some of the best bits of DS9 Absolutely. Uh, to make it make their own, the, the mirror universe, uh, a galaxy spanning war, um, right. trying to get all these things in. Um while not necessarily, I mean, I'm sure they would credit like DS9 as an inspiration, but it's a show that looks like quote unquote regular Star Trek, but yet has all these elements of DS9 in it. And the beauty of it is that it's all Star Trek, so you can pull from it oh, without sure. like yeah. saying, you know, you're not cheating or robbing from anyone. You're, you know, it's all Star Trek, so it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all of this, this amazing franchise rests on the shoulders of a pilot episode that's Let's face it, it, it's okay. It's pretty good. Uh, it's not like I wouldn't put it necessarily in the top 10 of my favorite DS9 episodes, though. Right. Um, right. I think, uh, you know, it looks fantastic. I think I read that the pilot cost about as much as Star Trek VI did in total. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which, you know, by today's standards, Star Trek VI was made pretty cheaply, but it was a lot for a pilot. Um, sure. And there's a few early hiccups before they really settle into the series. Um, I feel like they haven't figured the lighting out quite yet. Yes, it right. looks very different than it would the sort of warmness that we get um, in the sort of station environment later. Uh, the sound is kind of weird. You don't have that hum of the Enterprise engines to kind of pull it all together. Right. And I read that they had to loop a lot of the dialogue because I don't think they'd really figured the, the space out yet. Um, but they did a fantastic job of making the show look distinct from TNG. I think at one point they considered continuing the visual look of TNG into DS9, which would not have been very good. Yeah, no, not at all. Because, you know, TNG uh, and, the, and the Federation at that point, it's all about those clean lines, right? The yeah, smooth, yeah. clean lines. Yeah. And, and another thing that Deep Space Nine did was it got away from that and they started to, everything was the Cardassian design. And the Cardassians, you know, a different species, different design, different aesthetic. And I was like, wow, so now we're in a whole different literal world. Uh, and, and I think that's great. That's a, it was a great idea to do that. And, and I, I, wow, I'm just blown away that it costs so much money. I didn't really realize that. <laughs> I'm trying to think because I think it was like 20, 23 or $25 million, which, you know, for, as an investment, I'm sure the TNG pilot cost a lot, too. As an investment for a series, you have to put right. a lot in for the first one. But, yeah, it's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Yeah. Wow. There's no opening monologue, of course, for the show. And I read that, like, Ron Moore, who wasn't really in a decision-making position at the time, but looking mm-hmm. back, he had sort of wished that they had tried to come up with some kind of monologue. And I wonder what it would have even been, necessarily. Well, I'll tell you, in my personal opinion, man, that the, the score for Deep Space Nine, you, don't, you don't, don't mess with it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And that was another thing, um, watching that pilot for the first time, hearing that opening, I was like, well, this is beautiful. I mean, this this what is this? You know, I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was just it was it was peaceful and at the same time it was exciting. And I think uh some kind of uh narrative over that would have just spoiled it. So 
no, I think it was perfect as as is. I agree, and of course, Dennis McCarthy, uh, the composer of that great score. Right. It's also the first Star Trek show with an animated uh, opening, um, outside of you know comets flying by or just planets. Like we right. see that it sets the scene. This is this is where our play will be on this stage. You know, the right. station, and so. I agree. Like, I like how contemplative it is. And you don't want, you know, it'd be great to have Avery Brooks come in and say something. But yeah, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. No, it's not. And, and that in and of itself is just an, just yet another example of how different this show is to the, all the other Star Treks. Yeah. Well, speaking of Avery Brooks, I think we should talk about the man himself and talk about yes. Commander Sisko, who arrives in this show in a very different way than yes. uh, any other character does. Uh, we immediately see him um, at his lowest point, um, you know, the worst day of his life. And then without having him explain how he feels about it or, you know, have some speech to somebody about what he lost that day, we're immediately thrown into Mayberry and he's with his son <laughs> right. fishing and right. they're going to go off to this new job. And it's only over the course of the pilot that we learn the deep resentment that he has and the aching grief that he still holds. And what's great about it, and this is the great storytelling, is that it's really that grief that gets through to the wormhole aliens. It's what sells yes. them on the idea of linear time. We can understand why you could miss somebody. How could they be gone? And right. who know if they had talked to Dax instead, who knows what <laughs> I'm sure Dax has had pain and, and, and a loss in her life, but who knows if they would have had that same breakthrough. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think about that moment when they, when uh, Dax and, and Cisco first land uh, in actually the wormhole and, you know, Dax, when she steps out of the uh, runabout, you know, it's this serene, like, you know, park. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and she's, you know, it's like, it's almost like a Disney, right? You expect to see like Disney birds, twer tw you know, tweeting. In the and Cisco is in this, there's a storm clouds, it's dark, it's foreboding, you know, and that's what's going on in his soul. Yeah, know? it's a diagnosis of their sort of mental states. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so when they say to him, you exist here. And it's that you know scene from the from the Saratoga over and over and over again. It's 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 gut wrenching, man. And it just it, 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 for me it makes me tear up when I when I watch it because it's like how can you know you can feel this man's pain. He can't let go of it. Not out of like spite or bitterness because that's where he, the love of his life. That's where he left her. Yeah. You know, and he can't let go of that. It's like oh man, and and. And these aliens, they may not understand linear time, but they can grasp that emotion. They can grasp that. That's beautiful writing. Yeah. Come on. He was the, yeah, he's the perfect emissary you know, to, right, to the right. prophets. Yeah. Right. Um, to that end, uh, I think the creators, uh, Michael Piller and uh, Rick Berman, thought of the character uh, of Moses when they were coming up with Cisco uh, and this idea of him being somebody who was going to lead a people, a guy who himself uh, was not necessarily of them, you know, but was going to become a spiritual leader uh, to them. Right, right. Wow, I didn't, wow, that's great. And the, uh, you were talking about like the, how the pilot sort of jumps around and gives you something different. It also gets uh, about 35, 40 minutes in and it's like, ring, ring. Oh, Kai Opaka wants to talk to you. <laughs> Who? <laughs> and then we go off to a 
total aside thing where he goes and talks to this religious leader that shows him this weird vision and you realize like this is going to be way different than uh, any of the Star Trek show I've seen before. Absolutely. Bringing that religious aspect in is something that um, I'm glad they did, but it's sort of surprising uh, considering the sort of humanist uh, sort of agnostic or atheist um, history of Trek. Absolutely. And, and, and harking back to what you were saying earlier, I, I do not think that Gene Roddenberry would have done that. I just think that it was something that he strongly believed to keep those things kind of separate. And, and uh, so by him not participating and being a part of the Space Nine, it allowed the writers to explore that and still hold true to all of his ideals and wishes, you know? Yeah. And that, and it, it worked out beautifully because we got to see uh, the Bajoran people and how faith to them means everything and actually how faith basically saved them through the oppression of the occupation. Yeah, it's it, it really is like... It's it's a thumbs up for faith, basically. Like whatever it is that you believe in the show, and the show leaves it sort of ambiguous as to, you know, they're are they supernatural? They're these beings that exist right. outside of time. Although if right. I was going to describe God, I would start with that probably. And what's the difference? And the show doesn't care because all it cares about is the effect of these beings on the galaxy and the characters that we know. Um, I like how the show plays with the idea of destiny. Like there's these elements, uh, Cisco and the wormhole and the dominion, the prophets, and all of this could be random chance that they find the wormhole. But at the same time, there's also, you know, maybe your mom gets possessed by a bar prophet <laughs> right, uh, right. in, a, in, a, in the attempt to create you, to create these these events. And so... Yeah, it's just it leaves it ambiguous and you can kind of choose your own adventure as far as it goes. You know, and it's, it's interesting because in TOS and TNG, you know, we constantly have these stories where you have um, one race and science and technology. They look at that as, oh, wow, these people are gods. And those people on the other end of that is the Federation, you know, and yeah. they're like, oh, you know, we have all this science and technology and people are looking at that as like, wow, you're so far beyond us. And now with Deep Space Nine, the Federation is asked to be a party with a group of people, the Bajorans, who their faith, the Federation is like, well, uh, no, they're not, they're not gods, they're aliens. But then when you look at what the, what the wormhole aliens do, you know, you can make the argument, are they gods? Are, 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 is, it, is it faith? Is it technology? You know, what, what are they doing? They, they created the stable wormhole. How did they do that? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, so it, it's, it, constantly plays with those questions and constantly poses those questions over and over and folds it in on itself over and over. And I really like that idea. Yeah, I think DS9 also continues the tradition of this sort of allegorical storytelling um, about themes, social themes and issues, but it makes it more a lot more um, specific and I think um, pointed in Deep Space Nine. Whereas right. in TOS and TNG, you are encountering some aliens who clearly stand in for, I mean, the famous example is Frank Gorshin's got black on one side of his face, white <laughs> right. on the other, right? right. But I think right. DS9, both by sticking around, but also by doing specific things like um, the episode's past tense, um, yes. they, they really just said, we're not talking about something else. We're, we're actually talking about racism. We're talking about people <laughs> hating each other right. for the color of their skin or for where they come from or, or whatever. Right. That was another brave thing. I mean, 1993 and, and Star Trek D Space Nine decides, you know what, we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to talk about a brutal occupation. We're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about these things, you know, and the, the Cardassians 
were at the time. I mean, they they were like these racist guys. They were like, "No, we're not racist. What are you talking about? We 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 were we were enlightening the majority of people, man. Come on." Right, right. It's like, "Wow." You know, and you look at them, you're like, "Oh my god." But that was 1993 and the writers decided to take those courageous steps. And I think if 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 you hadn't had a Deep Space 9, we wouldn't have some of the the themes on on discovery and and even on Voyager uh, that we saw. You wouldn't have those without Deep Space Nine doing it first. So That's absolutely right. Something else about Cisco and really about the franchise of Trek in general is that I don't think that there, I guess I'm not in every writer's room, but I don't think there's a lot of black creators in Trek, unfortunately. Unfortunately, no. Yeah, and so I think it's amazing to get a, uh, a black lead character and also to have it follow him and his family. There, You know, just there's multiple times watching DS9 that while whatever is going on in the scene is happening, I'm just realizing this is a scene that is entirely black characters. You know, he's talking to uh, right. Cassidy, you know, he's talking to Jake. There, right. This is just, this is a black show right now. Uh, right. On, on, right. In the mid nineties, you know, on UPN right. or whatever. Right. This is a totally black show. And, and uh, that, that in and of itself is, is another bold step that we haven't, we hadn't seen at the time. And to be quite honest, we really haven't seen really that much sense. And I'm talking yeah. about not, not in regards to like, I mean, there, there are, there are sitcoms and stuff like that. But I'm talking about science fiction that takes itself seriously. Uh, there's, there's some, there's some, but there's not a lot out there that's, that, that does that. And Star Trek was, was one of the first, um, if not the first to do that. And, um, I, I, I love it. I love it for it. And, and, uh, discovery is, is now is, is taking up that mantle and what, what I love, one of the things I love about Discovery is that you're, you're seeing um, people of color on both sides of mm, the camera, mm, mm. you know, or, or, and, and what, I, what I like to say is like both sides of the page, not only the characters, but the people writing it. I think you, you need you need that um, in, in everything, not just in Star Trek, but in, in all forms of, uh, of, of, of fiction. And you need to see that because those are the stories that you need to tell. You need to tell those stories and explore those stories because that's all part of who we are. Yeah. Cisco is, is unique as a Trek protagonist as well in that he is a father and he's a, a family man. Uh, and it breaks the tradition of like Kirk and Picard, you know, they, they're married to the ship. They don't have a family. They don't have any children. <laughs> they have no connections. Uh, and yet perhaps going off of that inspiration of the rifleman, like Cisco is a guy who has something that he can't afford to lose, um, something he's already lost. Uh, and it colors all of his, uh, his decisions. Yes. Yeah, a great point that you make because um most of the, the the captains in Star Trek, or all of the captains in Star Trek, they're single, or they've had bad relationships, or they can't they can't have a stable relationship. Even Kirk said it. You know, we don't have families. You know, yeah. And, yeah. We never <laughs> run into a, a, an ex girlfriend of Cisco's. That's never a plot on the show. And and even even Janeway. I mean, even Janeway. She she uh, she well. I mean, she was she was lost in the in, in but she didn't do well with, with relationships. So here you have a, a guy that. You know, he had a, I mean, before 359, he had a really stable, happy relationship. Yeah. And had no problem with it. And then after he got over the, the anguish and pain of that, you see that he's a pretty well put together 
individual, even when he becomes a captain. He's not, you know, he's not really having a problem with that. And that in and of itself was something else that was different for Star Trek to see. Yeah, yeah. He goes from a guy who's like, I don't want to be here. This job sucks to like, right. I'm going to buy some land on Bajor. And <laughs> right. I'm going to get married and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to raise my son and, you know, it's going to be cool. It's going to be great. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Well, there's a lot of characters, unique characters, and of course, talented actors uh, behind those characters on DS9. And the writing staff, I think, had to really learn over the first season or two how how to write for these new kinds of characters and get a sense of who they were and how the actors were portraying them. Right. There aren't a lot of like missteps. I think that it's really, it's crazy how quickly you get a sense of who these characters are um, just in the first you know season of the show. Um, they're already being well-drawn in the pilot. Um it, what 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 really gets me is that like they they cast the show so well that we get characters that were in small roles who kept coming back and became major players because of right. how well they portrayed and embodied those roles like um like somebody like uh, Max Grudenchik uh, in the role of, of Rom, um, having Nog go from being that you know juvenile delinquent to being uh, a Starfleet <laughs> officer, you know himself, right. absolutely. And you have to imagine right. that Quark was probably just a kind of you know, jokey one-off character until they saw the depth that Armin Shimmerman could give him. And I think it's it's interesting, the, not only the depth of the actors and what they put to those characters, but in the in the pilot, it's all there. I mean, when you look at the relationships, they, they, the actors are pretty much, I mean, who, who those characters are, are pretty much who they are throughout the season, I mean, the series, excuse me. And like, for example, I'm thinking about Dukat, uh, the relationship between Dukat and Cisco, when Dukat comes back to his former office and he and Cisco have their first conversation, that is the beginnings of the relationship between them that will last seven years. And it's, it's a beautiful scene. Yeah. It's so great too. It's something so relatable to just like <laughs> having, a, you know, somebody coming back to a job that they used to work at right, you know, or something right. like that, or, or even like, you know, dating somebody that somebody else used to date and then you right. see that person and just that uncomfortableness right. uh, you can really relate to. Um, there's, I just, I, I mean, do you have a, fa- I'm trying to just sh- showcase or, or spotlight some of the uh, characters and actors here. Do you have a favorite uh, character on DS9? Well, okay. Um, uh, that's a whole nother um, podcast. Yeah, if I pick from from the pilot, I would say probably Dukat. I think Dukat oh, is like okay. the best Star Trek villain, man. Yeah. Um, easily. Easily. Uh, if I pick from, I guess, Deep Space Nine, I, I really like uh, Garrick. Um, mm-hmm. Plain, simple <laughs> Garrick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> He just he just has so much depth to the, the character, you know. He's just just done so well. Those two easily, and of course Cisco. But I mean, I mean that goes beyond saying, you know. But uh, I think uh, really uh, Ducat and Garrick. I think it's fascinating that uh, they brought Miles O'Brien over to DS Nine. Yes, uh, and I guess I had read that. They just they knew what they had in Colin Meany. Like they had a guy who who's been in a ton of movies. Like he's you know rock solid as a performer. But they're like, absolutely, we gotta. Yes, we want to do something new, but we could you know fill out the cracks a little bit with like familiar faces. <laughs> right. What I don't get though is I have no idea how these uniforms work. When Cisco first arrives at the station and O'Brien's showing him around, he's got the <laughs> the duty uniform on. But then when he goes back to say goodbye on the Enterprise, he's wearing. I guess the fleet uniform, he's back in his TNG uniform. Right, right. I was thinking about that was when I was watching it for for this. I was like, wait a minute, why are they flipping the colors back and forth? (laughs) What's going on? So, yeah. 
I didn't understand that either. So he had, if he's going to walk the halls for the last time, he's got to put that old uniform on and just, uh, <laughs> right. just say goodbye to everybody. Right. To remember this one last time. <laughs> that, that's a really great scene too, because there is a lot of emotion between, uh, Picard and O'Brien, this guy who saved his bacon, you know, hundreds of times in Transporter right. Room 3, but yet it's just two professionals, uh, a guy who doesn't show a lot of emotion and a guy who, you know, is, he salutes to the boss. And so it's just like, well, we're going to miss you. <laughs> it's just like right. a reserved thing, like Vulcans almost, but you can feel uh, that bond there. It's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful moment. And and that's writing because yeah, some yeah. people some people would have just not even put that in, but that's a beautiful moment that just cements uh not only the not only Next Gen and, and uh O'Brien leaving, but it's it's a really nice bridge between Next Gen and Deep Space Nine. Yeah, as much as the the scenes uh which are great between um Patrick Stewart and Avery Brooks, um th- this is like a handing of the torch over as mm-hmm. well, like take the flame and, and run with it. I, I'm, you've seen, I'm sure, the recent documentary, What We Left Behind, about DS9? Yeah, I contributed to it. It's a phenomenal documentary. That's yeah. great. Well, what I love about the doc, what I think is really telling, is the love and warmth and sense of celebration the cast and crew have for the series. Like, I would totally watch a similar documentary about TNG or Voyager, and I'm sure it would be great and also moving, but... In what we left behind, there's this sense of, you know, we really did something incredible and also a little bit of, you know, nobody believed in us, but <laughs> right. but look at us now, you know, look what we accomplished. Yeah, it was, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, it was the, the black sheep of the Trek family yeah. uh, for a very long time. And um, I, I was always there, but I, I know a lot of people, I would try and talk to my friends. So, did you watch Deep Space Nine this week? Why would I do that? <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, what? You know, and I would try and like reenact and tell people what was happening. Oh, did you see? Uh, and, but what was really interesting is that once the uh, the Dominion War started, mm. I think a lot of people got on board just because they wanted to see they wanted to see that they wanted to see starships, you know, in space and having those battles. Yeah. And, and I think it was that coupled with the long form storytelling that brought a lot of. Uh, people that may have been on the fence or, or, or not liking Deep Space Nine, and it brought them to Deep Space Nine. Because a, a lot of my friends, they started watching, like I think, like fifth, sixth season. They oh, really okay, started okay. watching DS9, yeah. Yeah. I think that for me, I probably felt the same way when it was on, uh, and I did enjoy the later seasons a lot. But now when I go back and watch it, I appreciate it for the fact that even when they're not doing something with Dukat or something with the Dominion, like if you get an Odo episode, the show becomes like a like a mystery episode, you know, like suddenly they're going to play up that side of him being a detective to figure it out. Or if we focus on Quark, it's going to be, you know, a broad comedy or something like this. The fact that the show could do so many things and and, and wear so many hats and go so many places, I think, is a, a real accomplishment. Absolutely. I, I remember that episode, I think it was sixth season, uh, the, I think it was the, or maybe fifth season, The Darkness and the Light, when uh, Kira is pregnant. Yes. And, some, and somebody's just trying to assassinate all her friends. Yes. And I'm like, where is this episode coming out of? Where, what's going on? And she just takes the mantle and she's going to find this guy and she just circumvents everybody, even Odo. And I was like, wow. And it was a phenomenal episode. Yeah. You know, so. And she she kills that guy. <laughs> There's, he gives her the the uh, sedative or whatever, and of course he's right. counteracted by this thing that she's randomly taking for the pregnancy. Right. And then later right. on, the cavalry shows up, and it's like, where's that guy? Uh, he's gone. He's gone. 
We don't ever see what happens to him. Yeah. No, he's gone. Yeah, yeah. It was a great episode. Did you have a favorite episode of the show or like a favorite storyline? Oh, man. Um, there's a few. Um, I mean, of course, I think everyone's going to tell you, going to say, In the Pale Moonlight, well, because yeah, yeah. it's just it's just a beautiful episode. Sure. Uh, past tense is a, is a, is a big favorite of mine because, um, you don't know where it's going. You think you're about to get like a, a standard Star Trek time travel. Right. And you don't, you, you get, you're like, oh, wow, wait a minute. We're, we're in 2024 and things are really bad. And now you have, um, you know, people from a utopian civilization and they're like, wow, we didn't know it was this bad. And and, <laughs> right. and now we have to try and deal with this, you know, and it was like, wow. And just what it was saying about society and, and what society is and what it can be, you know, it was just, it was just so, so, so beautiful. Yeah, I think probably those two, uh, the, the, the one between um, Ducat and uh, Cisco, is that um, Waltz or is it Duet? I always interchange those. Yeah, it's, um, the, it's not Duet, it's the other one that's sort of a musical reference. Right, right. Waltz, I think, and um, and uh, that that's a beautiful, beautiful episode between yeah. those two because everything was coming to a head between them, and it finally just hits the fan, and you get to see that you know Dakar has just lost it <laughs> <Yeah>. totally. <laughs> you know, he's he's just gone. But in in his insanity, he he you know he he has a certain amount of clarity, you know. And yeah. he's like, yeah, I'm going to just burn it all. I'm going to burn it all, man. I'm gonna, just going to wipe it all away. And he's like, oh, wow, this guy is gone, but this guy is really dangerous. You know, this guy, this one individual can destroy the entire Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, wow. So, yeah, I think those three episodes, uh, for me, really stand out. A guy so self-absorbed that he just cannot countenance the fact that he failed or lost so no. he's just got to destroy everything to <laughs> right. erase it all just to erase it. turn it off turn it back on again yeah right narcissistic much right yeah um. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, as we get near the end of the show here was there anything left unsaid anything that you wanted to bring up about emissary still i didn't touch a lot about um what it meant to have a a a, a, a black actor playing the role um i, I was fortunate enough to um to meet Avery Brooks three times. And oh, the wow. last time I, I met him, um, it was like a little um, jazz supper club in Harlem. And I, I asked him, uh, what did it mean to, uh, to, to be on Deep Space Nine? I asked him what it meant to, uh, to direct um, Far Beyond the Stars. Oh, yeah. And, and he looked at me, he said, necessary. <laughs> that was all he said, you know? <laughs> you know? And it was, it was total Avery Brooks, you know? Yeah, and yeah. it was like, wow, you know? And just that one word, necessary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm really happy that um, not only did the writers and producers and everyone decide to put a person of color in that role, but that it was him specifically. Yeah. I think... Uh, the man for the actors, moment. Exactly, a man for the moment. You, you said it better than I than I could have. So, yeah. Well, I, I got to have you back to tell that every Brooks Jazz Club story. <laughs> that oh, thank you, thank we'll get into that a little more some other time. Uh, let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Uh, well, as a kid, it was Kurt, of course. Sure. Of course, um, I would say Cisco um, because he just seems to be all around. Uh, a really good captain, but I, if I'm be really honest, um, uh, I'm, I'm and I'm just talking about like for for Star Trek, not beside, not for the uh, uh, 
personal agenda, but um, I'm really starting to like Pike. Okay. You know, yeah. Pike is really growing on me, man. Um, Pike seems to be a captain that is uh, balanced. He has humor. He, you know, he 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 knows what he's doing. Um, he's not really heavy-handed. So I, I I say right now for me, it's a toss-up between a uh, Cisco um, or Pike. There's a lot of things that, and of course, you've got a lot more material now to make that judgment and not right, just uh, right. him in a, in a wheelchair, right. but exactly. they, right. when they brought that character back, they could have done anything with him. But I, I love the fact that they made him into like basically the Ur Starfleet captain. Like it makes it more tragic when we lose him, but that Absolutely. sort of template that every captain can kind of judge themselves by. It reminds me of that scene in, in discovery when Saru is in charge of the ship and he asked the computer to call up, you know, the best captains or whatever. And of course, Pike, Right. on the list uh, and right. sort of comparing himself to those paragons i would love to see uh, captain garth at some point because kirk said <laughs> yeah. told garth because kirk told him he says you were the template so i would love to see what that was you know yeah definitely well now that we've reached the end of the show you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign what department <sighs> on the ship do you work in oh uh, um i don't know i was just <laughs> i guess i guess command um um, but in, in all honesty, I'd probably be like, I wouldn't mind like working in like the, the library somewhere. Oh, I think, okay. I think like Enterprise E had a physical library. Okay. So I wouldn't mind uh, just uh, hanging out there or, or maybe being a teacher somewhere um, oh. teaching. That would be great. Um, I don't, I don't need to go on away missions and do all that. If I could just <laughs> like, you know, I mean, that's, that's exciting. Sure. Sure. But, but uh, yeah, working with people is what I would really like. I know that you're uh, a photographer, and of course, on the show, they always say uh, it's in visual range now, and then they bring it up on the screen, <laughs> which is stupid because, would, yeah, it's not like the astronauts look out the window when they're flying the space shuttle. Like, it's all instruments and stuff like that, right? But, right, but I have right. to imagine that imaging and um, subspace, you know, we, there's a radio Man. telescope. You have to have a subspace telescope, right? Like, that, oh, you're that would brilliant. be a huge part of exploring. Yes, that would be fantastic. See, okay, there it is. That's it. That's what I want to do. Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad I could talk you into it. <laughs> Thank you. Because we need fantastic. one of those for sure. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Well, Ensign Batman, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek <laughs> and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter, uh, DATICO, D-A-T-T-I-C-O, on Twitter, Instagram, or you can go to my website, which is DerekAttico.com. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. It's been a, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Sonora.